I've entitled the message this morning, Persevering Under Pressure. Uh, we are back in, in Nehemiah. We took some time off last week, and I thought it was a great week last week, listening and hearing from the church. Um, but the theme of the morning really is, is that of opposition. Uh, and it's opposition that is very overt within Nehemiah. Um, but before we sort of looking at that story, um, I want you to think about opposition in your own life. Opposition that you might say that you face personally. And whether your life, whether you live it with a sense of opposition or whether you would say, well, actually my life is really one of smooth sailing. What are those things in your life that at times may challenge your own faith? And are they things that come from outside of you? Or are they things that occasionally well up inside of you? Um, I really think that as Christians, as children of God, we need to almost always be aware that there is opposition around us. Uh, that if we don't see that, if we don't feel it, if we don't think about that, um, perhaps our culture has driven us towards the world when the Bible says we need to draw near to God. So I want you to think about, well, I'll talk about Nehemiah, but I want to think about a lot of what we talk about in terms of your own life or the life of people you know and the opposition that they might face. Um, Nehemiah and those who were rebuilding the wall, um, the opposition they faced was very overt. You might say it was in their face. There was nothing subtle about the opposition they faced every day. The province of Judah and the city of Jerusalem were surrounded by those who viewed this rebuilding project, the rebuilding of the wall, as a very real threat. That rebuilding the wall actually was an indication of, you might say, growing national pride and perhaps even the potential of political and military clout in that area. And there was significant opposition. And three fellows, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who those three men, along with others, resurfaced many times in Nehemiah as being strong voices of opposition. And I want to say they were not the voices of what you might say random hecklers that you could easily dismiss. They were men with both political and military clout. And so when they began to, let's say, give Nehemiah and the workers a rough time, they did not pose what we would call an idle threat. They had authority. They had some legitimacy within that region. So Nehemiah and those working on the wall 
faced opposition on all sides. Throughout the building process, they faced opposition on all sides. I can think that Nehemiah would no doubt have preferred a work environment that was slightly more peaceful. That it's hardly ideal to work with a weapon in one hand and a building tool in the other hand. But we will find that on many occasions, that's how the people came to work. And as much as I want to say this story is about a physical building project, that they're actually physically building a wall, and I thought about that, Frank, last Sunday when you showed pictures of physically building walls in Mexico so that people could actually have homes that have walls and a cement floor. I thought about the building of this wall, which was just as real. But more than a physical building project, I believe it was truly a faith testing and faith building experience. And I think challenges that we face in life are those things that maybe at times want to challenge what we believe. They have the potential to have us drift away or they have the potential to cause us to draw nearer to God. And when I think about that song, Warren, this morning, faithfulness of God, that if we draw near to God, we will find that he is faithful. There's a fair amount of uh, scripture I'm going to read this morning. It's right from uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. And it says this, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of their friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. While this ridicule makes it sound like their opponents doubt that somehow these people can actually complete this task, I think it actually masks the fear that their enemies have that actually these people have the ability to accomplish it And I believe their enemies, there's such history in that region, have an understanding of the power of their God. And Nehemiah, when he faces that mocking, that ridicule, he prays. And I would call it, and maybe this is not fair, but to me it sounds very much like an Old Testament kind of prayer. It's not that God would bless their enemies. It's just the opposite. But rather that his justice would prevail over them. I would call it an eye for an eye kind of prayer. 
And in spite of the fact that he prayed earnestly to God, the opposition did not stop. In fact, it increased. And yet somehow after that prayer of Nehemiah, it says the people went back to work. Some translations said they went back and they had a mind to work. It is prayer followed by renewed faith, but not faith because God had taken away the opposition, but faith in God within the struggle. Nehemiah 4, 6, it says, At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. I'm going to continue to read the story. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, those building, said this. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them, and I think by them he means near those who may be perceived as being enemies, came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. And as I read and reread those verses, I sensed a people who actually were ready to pack it in. That say, Nehemiah, it's too much. No doubt, even just physically, building the top half of the wall would present far greater physical effort and labor than the bottom half. And the people are going to say, you know, this is physically demanding work. We are exhausted. We face what seems like an imminent attack. Maybe God is not in this. Let's pack it in. And as I thought about that, I thought about even the Christian walk that we are called to walk. That walking and living by faith is never the easy option. It wasn't for those building this wall in the face of adversity, and it isn't for us today, surrounded by a culture that in so many ways stands in opposition to what we believe. Yet we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. We are called to persevere. We're called to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We need to think about our life and our journey with God within the context of a marathon, which I've never run, 
I have no desire to run one. But from those who do, there are times in that race where you quite literally fight past pain. The journey that God calls us to is a marathon. It's life. It's our life. And as I thought about it, I thought, are we as a people, are we as families, as we as a church, are we in it for the long haul? Nehemiah faced a workforce that sounds to me like they were ready to give up. And Nehemiah stood in the gap and reminded the people that in their struggles, in the opposition that was all around them, God was still there. Sean Lipinski shared a little bit about that last Sunday and the challenges their family has had over the last year, year and a half. Not easy. But he gave a testimony to the faithfulness of God in the challenges that they had in their life at that point in the marathon. So Nehemiah does this. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, I love this, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. There are several times in Nehemiah when Nehemiah feels like he needs to talk to the people to rally the troops to clear the air sometimes, he does not simply do that with the, let's call it, those who have position. He gets everyone together. I think there is such beauty in that and something to be learned in that, actually. I said to them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And it's interesting, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, says the people returned to the wall, each to our own work. And from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said again to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. And I find it noteworthy that Nehemiah does not say we are well armed, we're prepared, we can outnumber them, we are stronger than them. He simply says our God will fight for us. I believe in that context. I mean, we see a people that are armed, but Nehemiah saying to them, it's God that will fight for you. I believe we fight for each other within the context of church, that as children, as family, we bear each other's burdens. We come alongside 
other people when opposition faces them, and that the church fights. But it's actually Jesus and God who is our victor. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night. So I would assume they don't go back to their fields or their places outside the city. So they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. It's quite an interesting picture. And I think it's interesting that they are 100% battle ready at all times. It sounds like 24-7, they are battle ready. But there is no indication in the story that their physical weapons were ever put to use. They had sentries ready. They had sentries posted but it was actually God who was providing their protection. It may appear that Nehemiah and the people had adopted what you might call an armed defensive posture. But as I thought of that, I thought they actually were on the offensive because in spite of opposition, they continued to build. That the rebuilding represented a spiritual endeavor in the face of opposition as much as it represented a physical project. It's the people saying we will continue to build, we will continue to trust, we will continue to walk by faith in the God who is fighting for us. And so in the middle of mocking, ridicule, and the threat of death, a relatively small band of people reconstructed a wall because God was fighting on their behalf. Nehemiah and the children of God in that story faced opposition daily. But I want to say there are also those in our church who live and experience a similar reality. A reality of opposition that sometimes can be within homes. It can be between husband and wife. It can be the reality of opposition in the workplace. People who experience a faith that includes what I might call heavy lifting. Where the potential to give up or to give in might be strong. There are people in our church for whom the encouragement to be steadfast, to persevere, to run the race set before them is a daily challenge. We're living a godly, patient, fruit-of-the-spirit kind of life is anything but easy. In this story, when the people were about to give up, Nehemiah stands in the gap for his people and appeals to God. I want to ask this morning, is it possible that God is asking you to stand in the gap for someone whose endurance, whose marathon at this point in life is being tested? 
Someone for whom giving up might seem like a very real option. And if you are standing in the gap on behalf of another person, another family, and I know that there are those in this congregation who are doing exactly that, you are working on a spiritual wall in a way that will make a difference in someone's life. So I encourage you, those of you doing that very thing, I encourage you to continue that work. When I think about opposition facing the North American church, the opposition we face is seldom overt. It's really not in our face. There are times where it may seem that we're given a rough time, but sometimes, sometimes we deserve it. At times there are people within the context of the North American church who make statements on behalf of the church that I think at times are very harmful. And at times we deserve pushback. But I think the opposition that we face in North American culture is far more subtle. I would say it's even far more insidious that the very language of our culture, the wisdom of man that truly gives direction to our culture in many ways completely challenges what we believe and how we believe we are called to live. John Stott, who's a very respected voice in evangelical circles, identified three, I'll call them cultural mindsets. You might call it the thinking of the world that stand in opposition to the Christian faith or that stand in opposition to the church. I think there's a slide for this. One, he said, was pluralism. That our culture increasingly says that religion, whatever form it takes, is all the same. It's all okay. There are probably many ways to God. It's a very tolerant kind of language. Pluralism. Number two, materialism. And I think about that as what is it in our culture that truly drives the culture? And in North America, probably that is very clearly materialism. The challenge of kind of where does our heart and our thoughts and our minds and our efforts, where do we focus them? So easy for them to be on material things. I think it is a legitimate challenge. And number three, he said moral relativism, which to me simply means how we believe we are called to live. How does God ask us to live? Our culture sees that very differently. Very differently. Our faith is often challenged there because there is an exclusivity about what we believe that is very easily painted or portrayed as intolerant or as close-minded. Ephesians 4 says this, we have one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is language our culture resists. Culture does not like that language. 
Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith, was described by Paul as a stumbling block. And what our culture really, I think, opposes about the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel itself. Yet God chose the foolishness of Christ to confuse, to challenge, to frustrate the wisdom of men. It is a challenge we face as children of God to hold on to faith, to run the race, to persevere, to stand firm in the middle of opposition and say, Jesus, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you died for my sins and made me a child of God. And I look forward to the hope that lies ahead for all who choose to believe in you. That's the gospel. God, help us live that out in the world in which we live with humility and with love. Paul said this, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. I think it's interesting that Paul says that Paul was a very educated, highly intelligent man, but he says he used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is a power of God and the wisdom of God. That the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. I find this comparison. Jews looking for some, a sign, something miraculous. The Greeks looking for wisdom of men. That comparison covers an awful lot of ground. And I think it's as relevant a statement as when Paul wrote it. That there are those, sometimes even in the church, who clamor for things supernatural. To phenomena that defies human reason or natural science. There's even a fascination with the paranormal within modern media. On the other hand, there are those who are quite happy to let their faith rest in the wisdom of man. I'll trust in those things that can be proven to be true. And yet these extremes, I think, in an interesting way, represent examples of the same thing. They both have a show-me aspect to them. Show me some signs and wonders that are spiritual. Show me the wisdom of man and I'll hang on to that. And they reflect a desire to walk by sight. Both of those do. And a reluctance or unwillingness to simply walk by faith. And if you say, what are we walking by faith in? We're walking by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And I find it interesting that even walking by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually believe that God can do signs and wonders and miraculous things. Walking by faith does not mean we don't understand that there is wisdom of man. We say that the wisdom of God is so far beyond that. The wisdom of man appears foolishness. But we're going to walk by faith, not by sight. Nehemiah confronted opposition with prayer, and he uh, confronted opposition with military strategy. You might say their military presence maybe thwarted the schemes of their enemies. They could say, oh my goodness, they know what we're up to, they're already armed. The New Testament says that we too, as children of God, are called to be alert. We're called to be ready. We are called to be armed at all times in order to ward off and defend our own faith from the attacks that come from the enemy of our soul. 1 Corinthians, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 10, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy, to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. I think probably in North America we would actually choose to somehow rewrite that. And I'm not suggesting we rewrite the Bible. We do not face the kind of opposition that many of our brothers and sisters do in other parts of the world who quite literally are giving their life for the sake of the gospel. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, he will support, he will strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundational power to him forever. Amen. I think we need to live our lives as Christians with an understanding that we are surrounded by opposition. If I don't grapple at some level with what it means to be in the world but not of the world, if I do not sort of see my own faith as a marathon, I will struggle to withstand the subtle pressure of our culture. As we walk through this world, we interact with it, we participate in it, and the Bible warns us not to be conformed to this world, but also he does not say, the Bible does not say, find a way to escape it. We are to remain steadfast, we are to relate to the world with both humility and love. We need to walk through this world, I might say, with our feet on the ground, but with our heart, our soul, and our mind firmly planted in a kingdom that's not of this world. Nehemiah and his workers were fully armed, yet Nehemiah acknowledged that it was God who fought for them. It was God who gave them victory. Unlike the physical weapons that they actually never had to use, the armor that you and I are called to put on needs to be with us daily. We are called in the New Testament to clothe ourselves in righteousness of Christ, 
to clothe ourselves in salvation, to clothe ourselves in truth. That if we wrap ourselves in those spiritual weapons, if we live with an attitude of prayer, and if we spend time in the word of God, we will find that we indeed are actually putting on, Paul says, putting on Christ, who is our victory. So Paul, I think, would say, make sure that you are walking through life in full spiritual gear. Fully armed. Put on Christ. Let his presence in our life remind us of the battle we are in. And remind us of the victory that he has won. I pray that God would give us a clear picture of who we are, who we're called to serve. And that even in times of opposition, in a culture of opposition, we would say, God, I choose to follow you. And I want to repeat, if you're standing in the gap for someone today, may God bless you. May God grant you patience and wisdom as you speak into lives that are struggling. If you feel that you are feeling surrounded by opposition on all sides, I want to say may you know that God is fighting for you. Even if it doesn't feel like it, would you know that God is fighting for you? And may we as a church continue to come alongside those who need encouragement. Come alongside and continue to speak of the goodness and the greatness of God even in the middle of conflict which we may be experiencing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's uh, so much in this chapter that made me think and even remind myself how easy it is to at times live as if we are not facing opposition. Uh, Father, how easy it is just to sort of go along with, in many cases, a life that seems so very much like the world around us. And Father, will you speak into our hearts that we are actually involved in a spiritual battle in the world in which we live? Speak to us, God. Build up our faith, I pray, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus truly is our victor. And Father, as we gather as a church, as we meet together as your children, Father, would you, when you speak to us about people in the church, maybe come alongside and support each other, I pray. I pray for those even now in our church, Father, who feel the opposition in such a real way, God, may you bring comfort of your spirit into their life. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Father, may we open it and read it and allow you to speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.